In the landmark 150th episode of the Nerd By Word, we travel back in time to revisit the first appearances of some of comics' greatest heroes to see just how well they hold up today. The Byword starts now. Welcome to episode 150 of the Nerd by Word. It's been an absolute honor to nerd out alongside you all for 150 episodes, nearly three years. Nerdy's coming soon, you know what that means. Um, On today's show, we wanted to take a look back at the first appearances of some of the most iconic superheroes and see how they got their start. But first, it's time for this week's... Oh, Dave, I can see the smile, even though we don't have video on. Hey, I I knew this is going to be very exciting news for you personally, and so I wanted to share it right away, since it is one of your all-time favorite characters too, right? Um, So obviously, there's a lot of anticipation building for Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, which, you know, we have every reason to be excited about, considering the absolute home run that the first movie was and getting two sequels uh, to what is arguably the best Spider-Man movie uh, is is really, really exciting. And of course, this being uh, once again, sort of a multiverse kind of movie, uh, we know we're getting all sorts of, um, you know, interesting things, uh, interesting variations on characters, and a whole bunch of the cast has already been revealed. However, eagle-eyed fans had spotted in the trailers that uh, none other than Ben Riley, Scarlet Spider himself, was uh, standing around in several of the shots, and no official announcement had been made who's actually voicing him. Uh, and now we finally have this news, uh, and it is Andy Samberg, believe it or not. And so Andy Samberg has uh, confirmed that he is going to be voicing uh, Ben Riley, Scarlet Spider. One Take News actually broke this news um, initially. Um, and he uh, also mentioned uh, to One Take News that uh, Ben Riley is actually what they're calling a quote-unquote secondary supporting character. So although Scarlet Spider won't be as crucial as Spider-Man India or Spider-Woman, uh, he is still going to be an important part of the story and not just a, a random character standing around in the background. And so as a fan of Ben Riley and Scarlet Spider and that whole situation with him and, and considering that the character has not gotten what I would call a lot of love in the comics, seeing uh, him on the big screen and voiced by somebody whose work I actually like a great deal, particularly on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which... Uh, is is probably in my in my top ten sitcoms ever. I just thought this was hilarious. Um, it, it's I'm really really interested. Uh, there was also some discussion of whether he's just using his regular you know voice or if he's actually trying to do some voice acting here. Um, you know, side eyeing Seth Rogen here as Donkey Kong for a second, who literally just sounded like Seth Rogen. Um, and apparently there's going to be some actual voice acting here. He's not just using his regular old voice. So I I think this is actually a, a really interesting casting and quite exciting. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, a character I really enjoy is going to get a little bit of a spotlight on the big screen. Oh, man, I, I, I would raise that. And I would say that this is pitch perfect casting because it's it's a voice actor and a character that I'm completely meh on. Um, I wish I saw the vision of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I tried it three or four times and it just did not land with me. 
so much of Andy Samberg's stuff is just okay for me. Um, and Ben Riley, just about the same. So it, it's perfect casting. Um, but in all seriousness, um, I, I could not be more excited for this sequel. My my only concern is the first one is a perfect film. It is. I don't think it's debatable. I think it is the best Spider-Man film. I think it's the best superhero film. Um, and people who make arguments uh, to the contrary probably have like this anti-animation bias. Um, they have to have everything in live action, which is a, a strange, strange preconception to, to hold. Um you know, I'm very, very excited about this movie, though, in all in all seriousness. Yeah, I am, too. And, uh, you know, I, I will say that I feel exactly the same way about Sandberg most of the time. Um, I really didn't see, uh, you know, him to be a particularly funny person when he was on Saturday Night Live and a lot of his post work. Um, I, I didn't really get into either. Uh, but there was something about Brooklyn Nine-Nine that clicked with me. Um you know, the first the first few episodes were kind of I was kind of meh on, but there, you know, it was something to watch. But there is something about I think the extended cast that really, really clicks in this. Um and so I'm I'm interested to see how, how this ends up turning out. Now, Chris, uh your story we've actually like texted back and forth about a little bit. This is uh this is really, really bad news. So what have you got? So I'm going to um kind of do the TLDR version of this, but it was, it's, it's not great news for one of our favorite comic book publishers. So IDW uh, went dark on the New York stock exchange um, and uh, their stocks plummeted. It opened at 82 cents a share and plummeted to 47 cents. And as a result, they are laying off 39% of their labor force. Um, So, you know, we've talked time and again, how much the IDW, you know, comic, particularly the Ninja Turtles have, have meant a great deal to us in recent years. But, um, you know, uh, Tom Waltz, who is instrumental in kind of revitalizing the, the property, um, made a big post on social media that he's kind of been relieved of some of his like senior editorial, um, roles and is, is quintessentially a freelancer now. So that does open him up to write for other publishers and do other work. Um, he has like a non-exclusive, he no longer has like an exclusive deal um, with IDW. Um, but, you know, anytime that you see 39%, nearly two fifths of the labor force, uh, including everybody in the marketing and editorial uh, kind of lose their livelihood is, is definitely a sad, a sad thing to see. Um, I highly recommend, um, and I think we're going to include it in our show notes, um, a great article that's very detailed um, if you're interested in more in kind of like the fine print and the the, the very micro details of this by Heidi McDonald on, on Comics Beat does a great job of laying all the um, all the explanations out and the very specific things, who's taking over and what have you. But it's just I just wanted to, you know, kind of send, you know, our thoughts and and. Uh, and stuff with the folks that are they're losing their livelihood and we hope that you know greener pastures are in their future that's a massive number of people that have lost their jobs and that's that's a, an absolute shame um and and as you know ginormous you know comic book nerds that we are um you, you know you always have to worry uh when you're getting these kinds of uh, indicators from what is essentially a top five comic book publisher you know um 
And and IDW has, you know, knocked out some stuff. I mean, just out of the park for years now. Their Transformer stuff was good. I think they did some Sonic the Hedgehog for a while that was really good. Their G.I. Joe stuff is very well regarded. They're sort of very much a home for like really strong adaptations of licensed material. And uh, their, their Turtle stuff is just absolutely incredible. And so um, I'm hoping that they're able to pull out of whatever this slump is um, and and reorganize and get themselves, you know, you know, back onto uh, into the green, I guess, into the black, in, into whatever color is good in this case, um, because, I, you know, I really don't want to lose IDW. Uh, just that would be a, a huge blow, I think, to the American comic book market, Chris. Yeah, and it's it's deeply saddening too because um, it's really just a sign of the times. And, and Heidi says this in the article, as you know, with the the advent of the pandemic and and how that really kind of hit the reshuffle button on on the direct market and and diamond distributions and everything that we've we've talked about a great deal over the the course of the history of this show, um, you know, and and. DC and Marvel backed by major corporations are doing, doing well enough, but it's, it's kind of like the smaller publishers like this. And so it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. Yeah. I think this is a wait and see situation, Chris. Mm-hmm. All right. That wraps up nerd news for this week. When we return from our first break, we're going to revisit the first appearances uh, of some seminal comic book characters and see how well they hold up. <laughs> All right, we are back here for today's Byword. And Dave and I were really kicking it around like ideas on what to do because 150 episodes is an important milestone. And so we wanted to do something pretty special and, and we kicked around a couple of ideas um, and we ultimately landed on um, revisiting the first appearances of some some truly iconic characters. And so today, uh, for today's episode, we have read the first appearance of Superman in Action Comics number one, uh, which was published in June 1938 uh, by uh, Jerome Siegel. I was surprised to see Jerome there, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. We looked uh, at Amazing Fantasy 15 by Stan Lee of Steve and Steve uh, Ditko, which was published in August of 1962. Um, we looked at Detective Comics 27, the first appearance of Batman um, by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Uh, yes, Bill Finger we included. Uh, more on that later, uh, which went on newsstands in May 1939. Um, I neglected to mention Amazing Fantasy 15. is of course, the first appearance, uh, appearance of Spider-Man. And then Uncanny X-Men number one, uh, published in September of 1963 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. So we're going to kind of do like a roundtable discussion. We'll talk about each title and then our observations and then just a couple of questions in summation and kind of, um, I think I think it kind of lends itself the fact that we, um, on the one hand, are comic book nerds and um, simultaneously history nerds as well. And so kind of, I've always been fascinated um, myself with like etymology and the origin point. Uh, there's a reason that we start our very first episode on our nerd origin stories. Um, it's just like a fascinating thing to kind of go almost like a time capsule to see this stuff. So, so Dave, let's start off with your guy. He gets to be first because he 
for all intents and purposes, was the first superhero. Um, Action Comics number one, Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, June 1938. What were your observations in revisiting this title? Yeah, this was was a really interesting one because, um, you know, when we look at the two DC books in particular, uh, Superman and uh, and Batman here, when we're looking at action comics and detective comics, we're looking at a very, very different era than like the early Marvel stuff, which was like in the 60s, right? So you got, you know, a very different storytelling style, very different art style already. Um, the X-Men in particular had a lot of room to breathe compared to, I think, detective comics was what, like a six page story? For Batman, so um, so these these you know I, I have to keep in mind as I was reading these that these are very different eras that we're looking at. Uh, the Superman uh, story in particular was fascinating because you know there's been a lot of tweaks obviously in you know the 80 years that he's been around to the mythos. You know you have um, you know he's found on the side of the road and then is like taken to an orphanage right uh, instead mm-hmm. of being raised by by the by the Kents right. So we, we don't really know what like you know, where he went from there, the story just like skips, he's a, he's a toddler and he's really strong. And then suddenly, boom, he's an adult, you know? So there's, there's a lot that obviously needed to be fleshed out there. Um, but like there's broad strokes there that are really interesting, you know, like he's, you know, he's very strong. He can't fly yet, but you know, he can, he can leap and he, you know, is very, very difficult to hurt. So the strength and the, and the, you know, near invulnerability is there. Um, he's working for a newspaper. He wears the glasses as Clark Kent. Nobody suspects he has a dual role. He's working for the Daily Star, though, not the Daily Planet. Mm-hmm. Lois Lane, yeah, Lois Lane is already a co-worker, right? Um, and he tries to go on a date with her, but she doesn't really give him the time of day. Um, and, you know, although his his boss, I don't think the editor has ever mentioned, he's very much sort of in the mold of what would become a Perry White-style character, right? So there's a lot of roots here, of things that are that have stuck around long term, um, the suit obviously obviously has gone through tweaks. But I, I was kind of um, very pleasantly surprised because it's been years since I read this story of how similar uh, the hair and the facial features um, are of Superman from back then and and today. I mean, there's very much a root of who he is that is that that that's, that's a very clear through line. Um, but the thing I love the most about this story is you know that that whole thing that grant morrison um kind of latched into when uh they had a chance to do like the new 52 run on action comics and we had like superman wearing a t-shirt and jeans and 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 that's really the 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 champion of the oppressed right so the idea that you know he's he's trying to save somebody who's on death row or he goes after uh, a lobbyist who's you know you know using corruption to try to influence a law being passed or he goes after somebody who is literally beating his wife with a belt or whip <laughs> yeah. in the art yeah. like it gets pretty it's yeah. pretty hardcore right um but he's like very much like i'm here for the little guy and you know it's always one of the things that i dislike most about um, people like Frank Miller and how they see Superman as sort of this um, this stooge for the government in a lot of ways, like this, like I toe the line, I'm Mister Law and Order, and all that stuff. And when you look at the roots of the character, he's like, I don't give a crap. I'm gonna dangle this guy out of the window. I'm gonna throw this guy around. I'm gonna bust this guy against the wall. If you are 
you know, if you're harming others, if you're if you're doing something that I find morally questionable, I'm going to be all over you. And I just absolutely adore that about this Superman. I sometimes wish we would get a little bit more of that Superman in the modern day. I think that is something that is that's missing sometimes in the character. You know, the guy who will stand up and say, you know what, I don't care. I'm I'm going to go after this. You know, and as I, I love that about this story, you can definitely tell that there is a a big dose of of uh, wish fulfillment on the on the part of Siegel and Schuster. Like, wouldn't it be nice if there was a guy who would bust in and just beat up the wife beater once? That kind of stuff is absolutely awesome. Chris, what was your reaction to this? It, it's really funny to me, and and we're gonna cover this. You know what? I'm gonna go ahead and put the cart before the horse. Um, and and you touched on this a great deal about the the giant gap, a thirty year gap between the the dc stuff and the marvel stuff and um if you haven't watched like some of these documentaries on like the history of comic books i i highly recommend that you do because you know dc came a great deal before marvel uh marvel as we know it today didn't even get started until the 60s it was it was timely comics and i believe it was even atlas comics before that um it's been a while since i've done a deep dive but um you know as a fan of zorro uh, you know are already what I'm going here with with both Action Comics number one and Detective Comics twenty seven. Um, it was fascinating to see the influence of the Curse of Capistrano and Johnston McCulley's work because it's almost like a direct lift. Uh, and, and to put that you know that timeline in perspective, you have the Curse of Capistrano coming out in 1919, um, first appearance of Zorro, and then the silent film The Mark of Zorro in 1920, and then you know, action comics, um, number one, 38, just a few years later. And, and the evidence there is undeniable where you have the duality of the identity of that character of the Diego de la Vega as being this, um, kind of, Oh, this socialite who is just so apathetic with all of these wild, cavalier events going on around him as a way to sell his secret identity and you can see that um a good deal here with clark but i would wager even more so um in some respect in some respects with with bruce wayne they really leaned into the socialite aspect of it um uh but yeah it was really really fascinating to kind of see what a june 1938 idea of what crime is and what Superman needs to step in and take care of in this time. Um, oh, so long ago, like we opened with him breaking into the governor's mansion <laughs> and tearing down a steel door and getting the governor up out of bed just to save a woman who is wrongfully uh, accused on death row. Um, you've got the priest there and everything um, with just minutes to go. So that was really, really fascinating. Um, and then, you know, like you said, the wife beater, the domestic abuse, like things that, you know, we think so often now with superheroes, everything has to be the next biggest crossover, um, like cosmic scale and these supervillains. And in Superman's first appearance, he's like, listen, uh, we're going to take care of the domestic abuser right here and throw him against the wall. Um, what I, what really stood out to me is probably my, my most stark observation is how you already see the strong foundation and even from two male creators of a strong female character in Lois Lane in her first appearance. 
um, and, and how well she can already handle herself. Um, so that was really cool to kind of see the, um, the origin point of that and ground zero for that, if you will. Um, the other one, uh, uh, the, the other big thing I was just like, when he's shaking the people out of the car, I'm like, bro, isn't Lois in that car? Let's, let's, let's tone it down. Let's get her out first. Um, but yeah, like this was a really, really enjoyable read um, as someone who, uh, like yourself, is uh, you know obsessed with history and everything. So it was really kind of almost like traveling in time to see this. I mean, on the one hand, I feel horrible for Clark Kent because Lois really lays into him, right? <laughs> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> but on but on the other hand, I have to say that I absolutely adore that this guy wants to cut in and dance with her, and she's like, "I'm just gonna slap him upside the head and leave. I'm I'm not putting up with this crap." Like like, what a character from the word go. Yeah, there, there is there is no uh, no revisionist history or something going on with Lois Lane. She always didn't put up with anybody's crap. All right, now we. We're, we're going to do some dosy doing here because uh, we're going to jump forward in time um, a, a good amount. We're, we're going all the way up to August 1962 um, with Amazing Fantasy 15. Um, now, I don't know about you, Dave, but I only read the, the Spider-Man stuff. I did not go on to read the additional back, back material. I only read the Spidey stuff. But um, what were your observations in revisiting this story? So is it strange to say that Spidey ended up actually being my favorite out of all of these? Um, again, um, I shouldn't be surprised, you know, when you're looking at uh, detective comics and uh, action comics, you know, and the huge gap, you know, about 30 years between those, the storytelling obviously changed a lot in that time period. Um, and I really did enjoy the Superman story, all things considered. However, uh, I have to say that this is just a place where I think Stan Lee really clicked Um uh, you know, e- even even the overuse by modern standards of, of you know, captions actually kind of worked uh, in this story, I think. Um, there's also something to be said, I think, and this is something we need to keep in mind, that officially speaking, this is still, um, you know, the origin point of, of Peter Parker Spider-Man, right? I mean, you know, with the sliding time scale and everything, technically speaking, um, you know, Marvel has never actually rebooted. So, so this is technically continuity you know i mean if you take some of the the stuff that would be anachronistic out this is still the same peter parker uh spider-man whereas if you're looking at superman or batman you know dc has rebooted that several times at, at this point and had different origins for the characters we know today so there is also a matter of having a very different sort of uh connection with continuity between those um but yeah i ended up really enjoying this um i think it it's probably a story that rings truest out of all of these to what the character still is today for better or for worse right i mean on the one hand you can see that he you know in essence spidey is still pretty much the same character um but on the flip side it also means that there's not been a whole lot of character uh, evolution and progression uh since back then and that that is a, a topic for a whole nother uh, a whole nother talk i think however um, you know, if I really break it down, I have to say that uh, from top to bottom, I think I enjoyed this as a story um, just straight up the most. I think there was a lot of highs and lows in there, a lot of interesting stuff going on. The character work was really good. Um, absolutely love um, Ditko's art here. Um, I had forgotten, actually, how big those underarm webs were for a while. <laughs> uh, like, like. That that that's like half a cape right there, guys. Okay, like he he stretches his arms out. That's half a cape. Okay, like we're we're halfway there. So th- I thought that was actually uh, really interesting. Um, and I'm not I'm still not 100 percent sure on the utility based on the story of that. I think I have to go back and read some more 
older Spidey books just to see like what he used that for because I can't really find a utility in that yet. I think there was some I think there was some gliding in in early ASM issues if I'm not mistaken. Huh, yeah, I'll have I'll have to look back at that. But I would say just like, you know, pound for pound, I think this was probably just storytelling wise my favorite out of all of these. It told a really interesting coherent, you know, beginning, middle and end story. Uh, we have to say like the Superman thing was was pretty much a bunch of vignettes, right? I mean, this was not an overarching story or anything. Um, but but this really felt like a clear, I, I had a beginning, I had a middle, I had an end. And this is the this is the origin point of this character. And now I can tell more stories with him. And I, and I think I really like that. So, so I'd say this is probably the best one out of the bunch. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in, in large circles, it's it's widely regarded as like the quintessential best origin story for a superhero and you know and for good reason i mean it's um like you said it's a continual story you know we get we get a lot um and you know as i mentioned in the intro this is just like the opening story of amazing fantasy 15 it's kind of like an anthology of different stories you go on to um subsequent stories that we we didn't read for this episode of course but um i think i think ditko's art combined with with lee's um script work and you know that's it's one of the most widely hotly debated things you know um in comics is is how much did stanley actually do we've we've talked about that a great deal with with uh, josie reisman's book of course um but no matter who did what i think the product on the page um absolutely sinks um it's it's impossible not to read this story and not envision the Raimi um, Spider-Man franchise. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that works so well about the Raimi Spider-Man films and yet one of the drawbacks as well. Similarly, how you were talking about the evolution or lack thereof of the character of Peter Parker. I think I feel like a similar kind of conundrum when I think of those Raimi films. And we talked about that when we revisited those about how they are a faithful adaptation by and large, but at the same time, they're kind of also encapsulated in the time period that they were created in. They're kind of stuck in the 60s and 70s. Um, all all that Peter needs in those Raimi films are these hilarious brown loafers. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know what it is about those brown loafers that always crack me up in those early Spider-Man issues. It's like um, he's either crawling the wall with these like, like dress shoes or they're like slung over his shoulder as he's crawling the wall. Um, I think what, what really kind of is interesting to revisit in this, a lot of people see uh, Peter Parker as this just absolute nerd, like antisocial type of person. And, you know, my favorite Peter Parker live action uh, and I believe yours is Andrew Garfield. And one of the criticisms is like, well, he's not a nerd. He's not this. And I think some people miss the point, or at least I have a different interpretation of the character. I, I, they said specifically, they said wallflower in here. So someone who just doesn't blend in for whatever reason. And I think that the 2012 adaptation of that character was spot on. You know, yeah, maybe he was handsome and he was dashing. Nobody said he was ugly in, in Amazing Fantasy 15, but he was a wallflower. He did not blend in with the social circles that he attended school with for one reason or another. Um, 
And I, I totally agree with your sentiment of it had a lot of time to learn timeline wise from the likes of action comics, detective comics and, and, and DC at large, because it had been going on for so long. Um, the, 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 the get up that he has when he faces Crusher Hogan is absolutely terrifying. I don't know if that's his like actual web because that can't be comfortable. Um, but I think, you know, the original costume design web pits and all is just iconic. Um, the one thing that jumps out to me every time I revisit this story and I've done it several times is just how crass and just unsympathetic the cop is. Bad news, son. Your shot, uncle has been shot. Murdered. Like, no sense of bedside manner when it comes to this cop. And then doesn't really do a great job of, like, consoling him. He runs off. Um, and then the other big observation is the the eyes that you can see through the mask when he realizes the robber. And then, you know, we go to one of the most iconic lines in the history of comic books. Um with great power, there must also come great responsibility. A lot of people screw that line up, but I mean, it it's it's almost like a, a philosophical, like religious mantra that that a lot of people live by. And I think the staying power of this story um, is really paramount here. So I, ha- I have I have two. Uh, two little tangents I wanted to mention here, specifically about Peter Parker's looks. The first thing I notice is that when the glasses come off, he's shockingly on model, even with how he looks today, like facial features wise and the way his hair falls and stuff. Like for the most, for most of the book, for most of the story, he looks like uh, you know stereotypical nerd with glasses. But when the glasses come come off, suddenly there's like, oh, holy crap! They still draw Peter Parker pretty much like mm-hmm. that. Like the facial features are right there. That that was. That was a pleasant surprise, you know, like, oh, my God, he looks pretty much spot on. But uh, the the other thing I wanted to mention about the looks thing, I don't know if you ever read that, but there was an, um, a crossover between um, Marvel and Invincible. No, I didn't. Um, where, so, yeah, so the, the story in Invincible is sort of blink it and you blink and you miss it. But then there was like a special or something. I have to look at what issue it was in again. Um, but there's this this sequence where basically Invincible is like, going from dimension to dimension, right? And one of the dimensions he ends up with is strongly hinted at is the Marvel Universe. And then there was a story printed somewhere outside of the Invincible series, and I cannot for the life of me remember where it was. But uh, it, it it goes there. Like, Invincible is in the Marvel U. He runs into Spider-Man. Spider-Man takes him to Avengers Tower. This was during the time period, uh, sort of the Straczynski run time period, where he's living in Avengers Tower with, with MJ and Aunt May and, you know, and so he takes him and and, and he you know meets the Avengers, um, and there is a he meets MJ and then MJ walks off and Peter says yeah it's kind of it's kind of surprising right that I'm married to her and Invincible says why I mean you're a decent looking guy and and you're a superhero why couldn't you you know get with the hot redhead and I just thought that was absolutely <laughs> spot on like there's there's no reason to 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 look at Peter who's always been drawn as a pretty attractive dude and then say yeah he can't get the hot redhead like. Um, so I, I I completely you know agree that the Garfield was my favorite take on on Peter Parker by far cinematically speaking because 
Um, I think he's very true to the spirit, if not the letter of of the character and how he was introduced. He's sort of a, a modern riff on, you know, here's a decent looking guy who's just really awkward and not very good in social situations and, and really like science, you know, and, and I think um, they did a really good job modernizing that because the Raimi Peter was very, very old fashioned. Uh, very much felt like something from the 60s. Um, and that was just a more modern interpretation of that kind of person that you might encounter in high school. So I thought that was a really good take on the character. And a lot of people, I, I, the one final note I want to make on this is the squinty eyes of Steve Gitko. I don't know what it is, but like every character has squinty eyes. Um, I'm a I'm a much bigger fan, and this is no slight to Ditko. I mean, and, and the contribution that he made to this character, to Doctor Strange and comics at large, is just I'm a, I'm I'm just I'm I'm a hopeless romantic, and so like the romance novel influence that John Romita Senior brought to the character, it's just it's just my preference. But you know, the squinty eyes of everybody is just funny to me. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different kind of art style. All right, now we are jumping back in time to May of 1939. Detective Comics uh, 27, uh, Batman's first appearance, Bob Kane, Bill Finger, even though Bob Kane went on a smear campaign to just hush-hush, or like a hush campaign to like claim sole creator responsibility for the majority of this character's um like history it's it's just like a really sad sad deep dive if you want to make that one um dave your observations of detective comics 27 my least favorite probably of these origin stories believe it or not um i just it's very interesting because i you know i have a i have a big love for batman um and yeah i, I i'm one of those people that says maybe dc needs to diversify their lineup a little bit maybe it's a little bit too much batman but i'm also the kid who who loved batman you know like you know i grew up in the age of batman the animated series i watched the michael keaton batman movie um and so so batman has always loomed large um in my life, I'm, I'm I'm one of those weirdos, by the way, that'll argue that Mask of the Phantasm is still the best theatrical Batman movie animation or not. You know, this is this that's my Into the Spider Verse. I think like it's just such a good animated movie. Um, so Batman is a is a really important character to me and one that I love a great deal. But for some reason, man, this story left me completely cold. Um, there's very very little recognizable about the Batman we have today here. Um, Obviously, this took a long, a much longer time to develop. I mean, you have the dual identity of Bruce Wayne, Batman, and Bruce Wayne is sort of the socialite. But for inexplicable reasons, he's always like a close friend with uh, Commissioner Gordon. And the two just like go and hang out together at crime scenes, as you do with your socialite friend when you're a cop, right? You just bring <laughs> him along to the, the scene of the murder, right? Um there is there is no detective work to speak of in this. He just basically conks a guy over the head and takes the paper away from him that he stole. And it's like, haha, I have deduced a solution. And I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, you literally just took the answer on a piece of paper away from somebody by conking him on the head, right? So, um, and then, you know, the big reveal at the end is, of course, that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And I'm like, no. I wonder who else it could have been. There is like nobody else in the book. Like there's Commissioner Gordon. There's this dandy guy who disappears halfway into the story. And then Batman shows up. Who else could it be? Um, there's no Alfred, right? There's no Robin, obviously, yet. Um, there's really n- not much of anything except for Commissioner Gordon and 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 Batman. Um, and ba- by the way, Batman, always in quotation marks. And hyphenated. Hyphenated. And, uh, 
made it. <laughs> Which is funny yeah, because because for Spidey large wasn't. points, it, it wasn't. For large portions, it always wasn't. And that's like the big sticking point with Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man there at the beginning wasn't so much hyphenated, right? But Batman was always in quotation marks and always hyphenated. Um, but yeah, so uh, for me, this one clicked the least. Um, I didn't. I didn't find the case particularly interesting. Uh, I didn't find the characters particularly interesting. Um, Bruce Wayne is sort of a non non character. Batman is not much of a character. There's nothing about why he's Batman or the motivation of being Batman. None of this stuff is here. Um, I think if you compare it to Superman's origin, which obviously came earlier, um, it, it's much more like this is why this guy has these powers. And because he's powerful, he decided to, you know, use that those powers for good. And with Batman, it's like there's a guy running around called the Batman in quotation marks with a hyphen. We don't know why. And by the end of the story, we still don't know what's up with this guy. So I found this origin extremely nondescript, uh, unmemorable, uh, basically uh, a riff on the Zorro motif at best. Um, very clearly, the Batman that we know and love today uh, took much longer to build over time, uh, whereas I think the Superman we know and love today came a little bit more formed from the word go. Yeah, it, I, I tend to agree. Like, um, just first at first glance, like Bob Kane did this weird thing where he abbreviated his name by saying Robert, like R O B apostrophe T. Like, bro, like who are you? Just put Bob. Like, what is Robert? That that was that was weird, bro. Um, the only the only thing that I have overwhelming acclaim for in this book is Commissioner Gordon's tweed jacket. That thing is gorgeous. Like I need that in my life. That tweed jacket is gorgeous. So go look up this tweed jacket that Commissioner Gordon has. It's a thing of beauty. Um, and then it's almost like a a color by number kind of story like it's not really adventurous it's not really unique um a lot of clunking on the head <laughs> like there's so much just bonk bonk um just forgettable executives um i thought it was interesting that somebody fell into the acid but they did not become the joker um and Batman was like, yeah, he deserved that. Like, dang, son. Mm-hmm. A fitting end for his kind. Oh, man. At least we do get the origin of Batman just disappearing. How can I ever think? What? Gone. I also, want, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk fashion, Chris, I have to mention those totally snazzy gloves that Batman is wearing here. That little, almost purplish number. Those little <laughs> short gloves. I'm like, looks like he's getting ready to clean a toilet or do surgery. I'm not. I was I'm just not sure he was getting ready to scrub in for surgery. Yeah, I remember. I remember when, um, when I was a kid, I was very, very sick. I spent like the first four years of my life like uh, hospitalized with croup cough more often than I'd like to remember. Um, and you know, my grandfather, rest his soul, was a very comical person. He was a he was an entertainer. He did music. He did um, comedy. And so to kind of like brighten my day while I was in a hospital bed, he would take those surgical gloves and blow them up like a balloon and like try and make me laugh. That's all I can think about when I look at these gloves. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like the design of the Batman character leaves a lot to be desired. The The bat symbol is very minuscule. 
the cape is uninspired the ears are weird um and maybe that's because i you know maybe he looks more actually bat-like but it's that commissioner gordon is the only thing that looks cool about this book it's, it's a weird one man i don't know it just didn't it's it's my least favorite by by a mile out of this batch all right, now we are fast forwarding once again, this time to now September 1963 uh, with X-Men number one uh, by Stanley and Jack Kirby, uh, widely regarded as the least favorite of the, the Marvel age of this. And, and I have tried time and again um, in my snake oil salesman or evangelism to convert Dave to Team Mutant. Um, I don't know that this was was my best pitch, though, Dave. No, it was not. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm going to be honest. I always found something absolutely mesmerizing about uh, about Jack Kirby's art, and I still do. Uh, the guy was absolutely bonkers sometimes with some of his ideas when you let him you know, really cut loose. But there's something about his art that is very distinct and different, and I don't want to say odd, but let, let's say unique and and so the art definitely had me um the story did not uh this is my second least favorite <laughs> of these four i actually found my eyes glazing over after a few pages because it's like here's all these characters and they're doing an extended training sequence then a woman shows up then they have a meeting with magneto and then it's over um it was not particularly riveting um i i'm not really sure that well, obviously, the, the outfits didn't stick around, but I'm also not really sure necessarily that the depictions of the characters were really in line with what they would later become. I got sort of a vibe off of Beast, for example, that his depiction is almost lifted from the thing. You know, like you, there's this like he's constantly getting like aggravated by one of the other X-Men and then he's like, I'm going to beat you up. And it's like very much sort of that Johnny Storm thing back and forth. Like, like we're getting sort of a car- carbon copy of that here, and that did not that did not work for me at all because it felt derivative of what was going on with Fantastic Four, I guess. Except Ben Grimm, except except Ben Grimm doesn't sexually assault women, so uh, like he did in Jean Grey. Well, thank God for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. Like this, this is was it's it's literally. Um, <sighs> It's 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 white people food. It's very bland. Like there's no spiciness. Yep, 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 yep. You know what I mean? Like it's it, yep. it's incre- it's incredibly bland, and it's just kind of there. And by the time I was finished reading it, I was like, okay, I'm ready for bit now. Um, I saved that one for last. I don't know why, but it definitely got me to the point where I could finally take a take some sleep. So I don't know, man. This was not. I, I see now. I think at the very least, how Claremont coming in and kind of changing things up was a real positive change from the initial the initial X-Men because this did very, very little for me. All right. So I'm going to start off with some blasphemy. You started with praising Jack Kirby's art. This is perhaps my hottest take of all time. I appreciate everything. I know you don't, you you don't like Jack Kirby's art. We've had this discussion before. (laughs) Oh, have we? Because um, I appreciate everything he did to the medium. I enjoy his art more when it is large and macro like the the DC stuff that I've read of his and like the Eternals, it's big, it's grandiose, um, it's ambitious, and that I appreciate. But the the facial features in particular, 
bring me great pause. It gives me very Neanderthal vibes. And so he's the perfect co-creator for Beast, who has this very caveman kind of aesthetic going for him. Um, It was interesting to see Charles Xavier's cranium continue to grow, it seemed, as the pages went on. Like his head just keep getting bigger and bigger. Maybe when you use telepathy and mind reading, it makes your head grow. I'm reminded of the I'm reminded of the story of that artist who kept growing a Power Girls bust to see how big he could go before an editor would say something. I'm I'm wondering if they were doing the same thing here with with Xavier's head, and if nobody said anything, how large would his head be today? You're, it reminds me of the 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 original series Star Trek, where um, I think it's the Cage, the one with those aliens where they yes. have like, large brains. That's what that's yes. what Xavier looks like here, um, and. It, it's it's also funny to revisit this comic because it's, of course, the first appearance of the original five X-Men, Charles Xavier, uh, including Iceman, who made shockwaves when I believe it was like 2011, 2012, when he came out of the closet. And people are like, you know, he had the same idiots who are like, he's not gay. How could he be gay? Oh, go woke, go broke and all this stupid stuff. But Dave, I don't know if you noticed, but on the first page, Iceman is literally pole dancing. Yeah, I saw that. (laughs) I saw that. The writing was on the wall. Dude's pole dancing on the first page in X-Men history. If you couldn't tell that guy was gay, I'm sorry. Maybe your reading comprehension skills, not what they thought to be. Also, he follows that up soon thereafter when Jean Grey shows up with, quote, a girl, big deal. I'm glad I'm not a wolf like you guys. And then I think it's Angel says, I'm glad too. Who needs the extra competition from Iceman? I mean, I do I think uh, Stan Lee thought that in 1963? No, but it definitely lends itself to making it make sense. Um, so yeah, this is, this is my least favorite iteration of the characters and you can see why this book was canceled it seems like they were kind of mailing it in if memory serves i think this was the last of like the marvel age um i think um with the induction and and anytime someone's like i want to get started on x-men and i think your next homework assignment i've already done this is just skip straight to giant size in 75 with len ween and, and and dave cockrum and then into claremont because this stuff is just, it's so much a product of its time. Maybe even out of these four, I think i think both Action Comics and Detective Comic, I mean, like all of them, yes, are a product of their time. But I think this one might even be the most of it, of like, you had like the Cuban Missile Crisis and like the, the space race going on. And you definitely, especially with the Cape Citadel stuff, you definitely get that influence in here. And like the red scare, um, Magneto is after he leaves Cape Citadel, he presumably goes and twirls his mustache and then ties a woman to the railroad tracks. Cause that's all the agency he's given here. So like the, the entire like premise of him being a Holocaust survivor, being of Jewish heritage, that all comes from Claremont all comes from him so all of the nuance to that character that that kind of evolved him into the character we know and love today that came 100 percent from claremont at least at least in its inception and and its evolution um there's a great panel of um xavier's 
ever-growing cranium just like overlooking the entire earth <laughs> that's just laughable um but yeah i think one of the fascinating things that i saw upon revisiting this um Jay Edidin, of course, fame of, of Miles and Jay explained the X-Men, one of the best podcasts out there. If you do want to take the deep dive into the X-Men, um, reads has a theory where Jay reads Cyclops as being autistic or on the spectrum. Um, and I believe, I believe his father is also on the spectrum and, and, and having, a child myself that's on the spectrum and you know, you and I, Dave over the years have had numerous students who are autistic reads Cyclops. He reads Cyclops as autistic. And it's really interesting to kind of see how Cyclops is kind of in the background here is not really, you have, you have beast, you know, accosting Jean gray and putting the moves on her. You have angel being like the stereotypical, like wealthy kid, who's trying to put the moves on her. You have Bobby, you know, being the young gun, like freezing everything. And then I don't even, I don't think they even call him Scott. He's slim. Slim Summers is very reserved, very in the background, very the good boy scout. And so I think right here, I absolutely see that reading of him being on the spectrum. All right, Dave. So now we have visited all four of these origin stories. Which, in your mind, had the the best writing? I think that uh, probably Spider Man. Uh, the Spider Man story probably had the best writing, uh, followed closely, I think, by the um, by Action Comics number one. I think those were probably, from a writing perspective, uh, the the best put together ones. I, I I tend to agree as well. Um, I think. I think there's a lot of reason, as I said before, why Amazing Fantasy 15 is widely regarded as one of the best origin stories. And I really, really enjoyed Action Comics number one. I think I might need to do a Superman deep dive, which is music to your ears. Yes. And in fact, I think I need to revisit some of this older stuff as well. Um, I've always been sort of a post-crisis guy. I've read, you know, the occasional story here and there, but uh, I feel like maybe going back to the 30s would be be an interesting way to uh, further explore the character. Okay, so we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but which which story in your mind featured the best art? Uh, well, you know, um, D- Ditko Spider-Man obviously is incredibly special. Um, and, and I think that's that's really fantastic art. And and Kirby is such a unique guy. I would say that the art in the, in the two Marvel stories was generally better. Um, but again, we have to consider, you know, 30 years of artistic evolution there. Um, if you're looking at... Um, you know the difference between between action comics and, the, and detective comics. I would say that I like the art in action comics a little better, um, but I, I think that comes down very much to personal preference. They're sort of 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 uh, you know from the same mold, I guess. Yeah, I think I, it's a tie for me between Amazing Fantasy and, and Action Comics, simply because I have a strong preference for John Romita's work as opposed to Steve Ditko. Um, and that's no disrespect to Ditko or the contributions he's made to the medium. I just have a strong preference for Romita's art. Um, and then taking into context everything with action comics. And I think I think that elevates the art for me too. And, and kind of seeing that 1930s style was kind of a breath of fresh air. Maybe it's because it was the first one I read as well. But um, it had it had a very strong impression on me. And it was really, really cool to see. 
All right. So we, we touched on this a little bit as well, Dave. So which of these characters have evolved the most over time and then the least? Uh, to me, Spidey has probably evolved the least, but that that can be good or bad, right? I think Superman is is very recognizable in a lot of ways too, and although his depiction has somewhat changed, a lot of the basics have stuck around uh, from that very first story. Lois, uh, the the newspaper job, the glasses as Clark Kent, you know, all of those things are still present. You know, the alien planet origin, all of that stuff. I think the the ones that probably have gone through the biggest evolution would be Batman because there's just nothing really defined in this first story. There's so much stuff, including an origin that just didn't exist here. Right. And then I would say that the X-Men have went through a massive upheaval. They're not really like this at all anymore for a long time now. So I would say the, the, the least changed would be Spidey followed by Superman. Um, and the most changed by far from the initial story would be the X-Men and Batman. Yeah, I totally agree. And it was interesting kind of, I knew peripherally like the Bill Finger of it all and like Bob Kane, like that whole story. But I did a little bit of a deep dive, you know, in in prep for this podcast. And um, if I remember correctly, Bob Kane just had like these general ideas. Like he had a red jumpsuit initially for Batman and he had just kind of like the, the most basic ideas of what he wanted for this. And I think that was very evident in the story that we got. Um, and so, you know, seeing that character, I mean, of course it's kind of apples to oranges when you have, um, like a solo character, um, in Batman versus a team book. Um, and then of course you have the X-Men, which are essentially their own publishing line now. Yes, they're Marvel in name, but it's very much like its own publishing line. So I, I, I definitely agree with your sentiments as well. All right. That's a wrap for our Byword Big Talk Action Comics number one. Am, uh, Amazing Fantasy uh, 15, Detective Comics 27, and X-Men number one. What did we miss if you read along with us? Um, what observations did you make? And what were your thoughts on all of this? Um, this was really fun, Dave. I think we need to kind of revisit this with some other characters. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in looking at Wonder Woman, the first one that jumps off, my, uh, off the top of my head. Yeah, I would definitely think we need to do this again. This was fun. All right, when we come back from this, our final break... Our patented nerd commendations come back again. All right, we are here for our fan favorite segment where we have the goods and share them to you. We call it... Dave, I watched the first half of this and then I saw you include it. I was like, oh crap, I need to go finish that. Um, but go ahead and bask us in the nostalgia and the awesomeness of it. All right, so my nerd commendation this week is Power Rangers Once and Always, a Netflix special of about an hour that is a celebration of 30 years of the Power Rangers franchise, as well as a reunion of sorts of uh, the original Rangers. Um and I have to say, uh, if you are a Mighty Morphin guy like myself, then uh, this is going to uh, this is going to hit you right in the feels. Um, so I first want to mention that uh, my relationship with Power Rangers, which is that uh, I was a kid when uh, Mighty Morphin came out and uh, was obsessed with the show. And when it started changing over to Zio and then Turbo, I kind of started disconnecting. And although I have occasionally dipped back into Power Rangers and looked at some of the other seasons, uh, it's really a mighty morphin that holds a special place in my heart. I've previously nerd-commended the Boom Studios Power Rangers comic books. I'm really liking how they are sort of um, 
having a, a slightly different take on the Mighty Morphin characters. And I really like how that's progressed over those hundred and some issues so far. Um, so these are really uh, the characters uh, that I am personally most nostalgic for. Um, so th- the story here is uh, pretty straightforward. The original Mighty Morphin team uh, is getting together and fighting um, against a uh, robotic version of Rita Repulsa, the original bad guy. It's sort of the the evil uh, that has was cleansed from her at the end of the original run uh, has sort of taken a new body, a robot, and she's trying to make a comeback, basically. Um, and she manages to kill the Yellow Ranger, Trini. Um, and so this is sort of um, the point where they're able to, uh, you know, give tribute to the original actress who played Trini, who died... Uh, many years ago, actually, in a uh, car accident. And so they were able to uh, pay tribute to the actress and and the character um, in some way. Uh, The original Rangers featured here are Blue Ranger David Yost, um, who... Uh, has a a sort of interesting, contentious, you could say, relationship with the Power Rangers franchise as he originally walked off the series for uh, consistent harassment uh, for his his being a gay man. Um, And so him coming back is uh, is kind of a big deal. Uh, We also have uh, Walter Jones returning as as the Black Ranger, Zack. And then we have uh, several of the quote-unquote um, second generation uh, Rangers coming back, you know? Um, so uh, at this point, you had uh, original Green Ranger, uh, Jason David Frank, uh, declining to appear. Uh, so we have a stuntman in a Green Ranger suit. Um, and uh, we also had the original Pink Ranger declining to um, appear. So what they basically did here very smartly is to have sort of uh, a lot of the original characters be captured uh, in their morphed form by Robo Rita and kind of sidelining them so they can, uh, you know, move forward without actually, you know, having to on screen explain why some of these people aren't there. Um, a lot of the special really revolves around, uh, Billy's guilt, uh, in trying, he was trying to kind of bring back Zordon and accidentally unleashed Robo Rita. It revolves a lot around, um, Trini's daughter and her her trying to come to terms with the loss of her mother. There's a lot of dramatic and meaty scenes in this that you would have not probably gotten from the original Mighty Morphin. It feels in a lot of way like a little bit more of an adult evolved version of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, while still being extremely cheesy with the one-liners and the fight scenes. Um, And I think that worked extremely well. It's a nice balance that the special was able to strike between what is nostalgic and familiar and something that you know, kind of cast some of these characters in a more mature, grown-up light. I, I really like that <clears throat> that element of it. I also really like that they made a big effort in the Zords, that they actually look like the originals. This is uh, CGI, obviously, but the originals were, you know, um, let's say giant toys. <laughs> um, so they did a really good job kind of capturing that, at least in the individual Zords. However, once we go Megazord... Uh, it's very, very dodgy CGI in that particular fight scene. Um, but I think they made it work overall. I think part of Power Rangers' appeal has always been that the special effects are dodgy at best, right? So um, I really, really enjoyed this as a as a blast of nostalgia, as a way of checking in with some of these characters. Um, and at the same time, I really hope 
uh, that that Yost uh, and and Jones get to continue some kind of relationship with Power Rangers going forward. They seem to be open to coming back at these as these characters. Seeing them on screen again was really the highlight of this, as was how much they've changed as actors and grown. I would really say that that Jones and Yost carried this acting wise. Um, they had some of the most more meaty and dramatic scenes, and they were absolutely perfect. So I would love to see sort of a Mighty Morphin, uh, the next generation or something with with Billy and Zack as the mentors. I would totally be there for something like that just based off of this one hour special. So if you like Mighty Morphin in any way, shape or form, I highly recommend checking this out. Um, it's familiar and fresh at the same time and, and a really good time for longtime fans. Yeah, like I mentioned, I just finished this this morning. I had watched the first half, I think, last weekend. Um, and it was was really reliable, uh, enjoyable. Excuse me. Um, it was very cheesy, very, um, very cheesecakey. I think um, it, it was interesting because I recently revisited um, the original Mighty Morphin on Netflix um, with my kids after reading the comics, and um, and so like it packed more of an emotional punch. I think watching this, um, I think far and away for me, you know, it was great seeing Walter Jones and. And David Yost back um, alongside, you know, Kat and Rocky, um, Adam and Aisha as well. But but I think Charlie Kirsch as, as Min, uh, Trini's daughter, was was really the tour de force here. And she I think she gave the strongest performance personally. Um, but like I said, um, and you mentioned this as well. Very, very cheesy. But I mean, like it's Power Rangers. So what are you going to do? Um, but yeah, this 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 brought me back, man. And you need to know what you're asking for, right? It's like if you're watching Doctor Who, you know that the special effects are going to be dodgy. If you're watching Power Rangers, you know the special effects are going to be dodgy. Um, but you, but you kind of love it warts and all, right? So if, if you're already in a place where you, you love this franchise, this is definitely something to, to look at, yeah. All right, Chris, so what are you nerd commending this week? So this was a pleasant surprise. So I was scrolling around Disney Plus for something to watch with the kids. Um, and came across something I totally forgot about, and that's Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Um, and it's an animated series on Disney+. Plus. Um, this is a comics character that has kind of been recently created, if I remember correctly, one of the, 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 one of the few positive aspects of, of the Inhumans line alongside Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel. Um, Lunella Lafayette is 13-year-old genius living with her parents who by some kind of hijinks, science hijinks, um, now has a pet red Tyrannosaurus. Um, and it's kind of their adventures on this. And this is just like a really cute, fun show for families to watch together. Um, it's got an amazing voice cast. Um, Diamond White is really, really great and really emotes well um, as as Moon Girl, Fred Tatashiori as the Devil Dinosaur. Um Alfre Wooders, Shia Zamata, Jermaine Fowler, Gary Anthony Williams. Like, it's really, really great. And then you got some big names kind of as, like, guest roles. Lawrence Fishburne is the Beyonder. Um, and Bill Foster. Um, you've got Craig Robinson as Principal Nelson. Um, and it's, it's really great. It's really kind of ambitious and really embraces the medium of animation, um, I don't know if it's like the full fledged version of what we saw of into the spider verse, but it's, it's imaginative. It's kind of all inclusive when it comes to like the storytelling possibilities. Um, it's got, it's got the family and the heart that we love so much with Ms. Marvel. Um, 
at the center of it in like the neighborhood um in like small businesses like there's a sandwich shop run by one of their neighbors and friends um it's just got a lot of heart and it's just like a really pure fun show and i highly recommend it yeah i'm here for this uh, this definitely seems like something that would be up my alley i'm not familiar with the franchise i know there's comics i really want to check those out as well i think there's something really um fun about the promos that i've seen for the series so i definitely want to check it out man all right that wraps up the 150th episode of the nerd by word we thank you so much for joining in uh joining us along this journey if you're just now finding us please be sure to like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. If you you name the platform, we're there. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or nerdbyword.com. And you can find us on social media and tell us your thoughts on today's episode. Any of our episodes, you can tell us how awesome we are or how we are ruining podcasting forever. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword or individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.